0: everybody and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me Jean-Paul Wright. Firstly I'd like to thank everybody who has sent in suggestions on podcast topics and future guests. As Claire and I mentioned on our 200th podcast it's getting ever more difficult over four years, the last four years that is, to come up with new content. However thanks to you lovely people more suggestions and ideas are still coming in So, thank you. Can I remind you to like and rate the podcast on whatever provider you're listening to this on, as this helps the various pesky algorithms to kick into action. So, this week, I've just mentioned how hard it is to continually come up with content. Well, this lady has been giving online flute advice and performance tips for many, many years. Dr. Angela Kinney-McBreaty, otherwise known as Dr. Flute, is your go-to website and YouTube channel for advice on everything flute-related. She is Assistant Professor of Flute at Helton College, where she also teaches classes in instrumental methods and secondary methods. As a performer, Dr McBreaty plays in the AMA Flute Trio and the innovative Roan Trio, which performs using multimedia and dance as part of the programme. She is also founder-conductor of the Crystal City Flute Choir, which frequently performs in the central New York region. She's had articles published and appeared in Flute Talk and the PMEA News. Dr. McBrady currently publishes articles at drflute.com and videos at youtube.com slash drflute, as well as other teaching platforms. So, hello Angela, and welcome to Talking Flutes Extra.
1: Hi there. Thank you. Oh, it's wonderful to be here.
0: Thank you. I can call you Angela, not Dr. Flute, can I?
1: Yes, you can call me Angela, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I call you JP.
0: Oh, absolutely call me JP. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like um, Andrea, isn't it? I mean, many people know Andrea's Fluter Scooter, and yet to call her Andrea is quite odd. I call her Andrea now, but it's quite odd because I've always called her Fluter Scooter. And I've always known you as Dr. Yeah. Flute since I first met you wandering around. And the thing is, everybody, is when you see Angela at the NFA, she's not just sort of standing there smiling. She's going from booth to booth to booth. And she's trying instrument, instruments and instruments. And oh, yeah. you know, she doesn't stand there and, and sort of look pretty. She is there working as Dr. Flute, <laughs> finding out what's new. Finding out what she's the different the differentials she she can feel between different models, checking out the hype that companies put out compared to what she's actually feeling because yeah we'll cover that in a second because that is very very different. So we bumped into each other at a flute convention, god, oh, quite a few years ago now because I haven't been any for two years. We've lost two years. Yeah, right, we? I
1: haven't
0: either. We have. And I bumped into her and I said, ah. Dr. Flute. And yeah, she was, I think she was on contrabasses or something. She was doing something really quite strange. (laughs) So welcome. And it's lovely to get you on. And I've got, I've only chosen five questions as sent in by our listeners. And we'll cover those from a one to five and we'll leave what I think is the hardest till the end. But when it comes to going to a convention and when it comes to testing a flute... Now, I believe, and I very much doubt if this isn't the case, that you have probably played and tested all the major brands out there and many of the step-ups and all the professional models. And you understand the preferences, the many preferences, that each model would give to a player. From a testing perspective and from a teaching perspective and for a YouTuber, how do you differentiate what is the spin from the company and what is the reality?
1: Mm. Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Okay. Well, if, so let's just say a beginner model flute, I'm just going to take from a a little different and work up into that. I think for beginner model flutes, get a flute. I don't think it has to be this brand or that brand or whatever i just say get a flute when you're moving up into the uh intermediate to professional level i think that's where you're um going to spend a little bit more time deciding what flute is the right one for you and of course all the flute makers um you know think their flute is the best and um that's perfectly fine but probably the best for someone but they're not always the best for you. So I think it's really important not to, and I've had students that would just go to a music store and, or, or online, especially online these days, and just, I got a good price. I just bought this flute. This is it. And I make it work. You know, that's fine. If that's what the student gets, then I'm not going to complain. It's a, still a step-up flute. It's usually, they have a silver head joint because I think that if you're going for a step-up, you need the silver head joint. Because this is when you're going to the step up. That's when your tone starts coming into play. And you're, you know, you're starting to differentiate yourself from the, the masses that just play flute, but aren't taking lessons. They're just playing in the school band or something. And um, if you're serious that you're going to move up to the step up flute, then tone is what you're after. So you need to find the right flute that works for your embouchure. And as we all know, our embouchures are lip shape. Is different, and I, I have you know, really found that. Oh, look, in this low register, this flute works really well for you, but when that student moves, their embouchure changes in such a way that up the octave, a flute doesn't work for them in, in a, a particular brand. So, you know, when and as, as a step up flute, that the main thing is number one, go working on getting a step up flute, being very much in shape. Uh, I have a student that a regular school student, probably is not going to be a, a major at college or anything, but uh, she has a hard time remembering to bring her flute home after band practice. And so <laughs> while she's a very good student, she's out of shape and she wants to look for a, a next level flute. And I say, well, the first thing you got to do is bring it home because there's no sense in looking for another flute if your lip is not totally in shape. But um, when you're looking for that step up flute, you know, the bottom level is that you have to have a solid silver head joint. And then, then, then it's a money thing. If you can spend more money and get a solid flute body as well, you're going to be a much happier person. But as far as the different flute makers go, you know, some, it just depends the cut of the head joint and the steepness of the lip plate. You know, those are all factors that if you're moving to a step up, I'm not positive. Like my, Students that go to the Step Up need to know all those particulars about the cut of the head joint and the, the, the circle and the lip, you know, what all those things mean, because it bogs them down too much. They just need to get about four different flutes and try them out and find the one that works for them. Uh, and I always tell them, bring them to me. Let me hear you with them because their parents don't really aren't really savvy in that world and they don't really know um, so I like to work with them to make sure they pick it out.
0: Ah, so let's yep. not go to professional flutes because now we're talking really twee and I know, yeah, and you're... it's, yeah, you, you're, we're talking minutiae and we're talking your ear and your feelings. And, uh, I, I know you've it's done really quite preference. a lot of work. Yeah, it is totally. I like your vibe and your guidance to your students in that go out, understand what you're looking for in the step up. Don't necessarily be, necessarily be blown away by the name on the barrel. Go by what you're feeling. If you feel that this flute or this flute is, feels really good for you, then take them both on, uh, on APRO, whatever it is you call it, and consignment, and take it back to you, right. and you can listen to it with a critical ear. Because as, you're, as you rightly say, with parents, I mean, their they're Johnny or Jane or whoever it is sounds great on everything.
1: Right. Yep. They don't know what they're listening for. And uh, I mean, I like to use their opinions where they can say, say I'll, I'll ask, can you hear the difference between these two and this student? So that they feel like they're part of it, too. I want their, their input. Because <laughs> after all, they're the ones forking over the money for it. So
0: they are, you want to have they? some input. Until you get up to the professional levels and there are real personal preferences and they, they can be quite defined between... The Boston American models and the Japanese models, because sort of the the two areas, right. the world areas of sort of Japan and right. Boston, and they're very different in what they give to the musician. But there is no right or no wrong, and right. it, is, it is comes down to the personal preference. But that step up is, as you rightly say, right. there is there is a key, and that key is, as you sort of eloquently put, it's down to tonal response and what's going to come out. Because that's when you're growing up, isn't it? You're hitting musical puberty.
1: Right. Yes, exactly.
0: That's so true. And you have you ever had any horror stories?
1: Uh, horror stories? Not particularly. I've had ones that I didn't think it was the right flute for them. Ah. But they've already spent the money, so I'm going to make it work. You know, and, and almost always, it's better than what they had. Ah. It's better than the student model flute. I just think that maybe it closed up their sound rather than helped their sound open up or you know something about their the lip plate. It just didn't seem the right instrument for them. But hey, if, if that's what they have, I'm certainly not gonna make the student
0: feel bad about that. But it's sound, sound, sound. I
1: got a student bring to me a, a beginner flute that was just atrocious, <laughs> and it was brand new. And it couldn't be played, I finally said, you know, because it's a beginner, I, I don't know if it's the flute or you. And I said, okay, I, I just got to take this flute. And then I played it. Like, I couldn't make a sound on that thing at all. And I had to gently tell the parents that, okay, so it was from a company that doesn't normally make flutes. Huh. The parents just thought, well, this is good. I'll just buy this cheap flute uh, from this company that is not a music company. And, um, oh, it was so bad. It was so bad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's the we cannot underestimate the importance of the critical ear of the teacher rather than the parents yes you're exactly right the parents pay the bill but you want the parents need to be paying for the an investment and that investment unless the parents are musical really should come from the advice and guidance of the teacher right right the critical ear yes exactly uh, where am I? Sorry, I forgot to ask. Where am I dialing in? I
1: live in New York State. And just to explain that a little bit, because I, I know you're probably very savvy about New York State, but going to other states, if I tell, if I go to Michigan and say I'm from New York, they automatically think I'm from New York City. And um, New York State is large, so I'm probably about four or five hours from downtown New York City. I'm way upstate.
0: Wow. So I'm out,
1: way out in the country in a little tiny town called Corning. And uh, Corning's big claim to fame is the Corning Incorporated Company that makes what a lot of people have on their phones, Gorilla Glass. Wow. So... This is the home of Gorilla Glass. It
0: sounds like from where you live to New York City or Manhattan is as long a drive as it takes from me to get to Scotland or north of England, sort of the whole length of the country. Oh, really? (laughs) That puts it all in perspective, doesn't it?
1: It's a little bit of perspective
0: there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long have you been doing your, your YouTube and your Dr. Flute advice? Um, uh, and how did it start? And what made you go down this route?
1: So, you know, I have to give it all to my husband. He um, started delving into um, some online teaching platforms for some things that he was learning. And he came to me and said, I think you ought to be on this. I think you can do this. And that was around 2017. So that's when Dr. Flute started on YouTube. And some, I have five different classes mm-hmm. on different teaching platforms. And in, in, it's all due to the fact that he started looking at that. And then he said, I think you need to be on this. And then we got into, so we did the, like the classes first and then got into the website and onto YouTube
0: and it really is a reference site. Now, I was saying with Claire a few weeks ago when we hit our 200th podcast that it's struggled oh, wow. it's a struggle to come up with content because yeah certainly with what you're doing where you have to be very specific. Claire and I or I will speak to a guest and we'll have a chat and there's other things to talk about. But when you're doing mm-hmm. content which is based around a specific teaching or educational point that must be very hard to actually plan ahead.
1: Yeah you know, I I like to keep a little notebook with me. Uh, that when I'm teaching a student, and uh, you know, sometimes right in the middle of me teaching a student, I think oh, this would be good for my, and I I write it down. Or you know, a lot of times while I want to advocate that we all concentrate on our warm ups when we're warming up, a lot of times uh, I'll get some good idea because of something I'm warming up on, and my mind is wandering onto some other flute related topic, and you know, I write down. Uh, And a lot of times right now, take something that I've done before and get much more nitty gritty on that particular topic. So I feel like I can delve down a little bit more into more specifics. And um, at the beginning, I tried to make these really short videos so that people had time because time is a problem. And now I'm trying to get, okay, I'm going to get more specific and a little bit lengthen out that idea so that I can really talk about it.
0: Take a look at Dr. Flute on YouTube. I was going through them before we did the podcast and I was thinking, oh, we haven't spoken about that on our podcast about that one. And, oh, you've, you've covered that. It, <laughs> you really do cover a lot of areas. One really interesting one for people who always struggle to know what a different flute sounds like is you've done a really, some really interesting ones where you've delved down in a first flute, which was a Trevor James, and then you've gone up to, with two Haynes flutes. That is really that is really interesting because every single person can hear the tonal differences between what you're doing, and you explain why each sits where it sits, and that is invaluable to certainly to parents. Right. Yeah. the The different levels of flute have been really fun to
1: do and talk about. You know, a beginning flute, and and a question that I've gotten many times is, do I actually need to upgrade? Is it important for me to move up? And then I like to play the three different levels of like the Haynes three different levels of flute there to say, well, no, nobody says you have to. Uh, And I've certainly had, I had a student that went off to be a, a flute major this past year at college who played a long time on a beginner flute and had just the absolute best tone on a beginner flute I've ever heard. It was so phenomenal. And then when he moved to the step up flute, it was better but the jump wasn't as much as maybe someone else who had a a lesser tone and moved to that because he could just get a really phenomenal tone. So I want to be very realistic to, to people and especially because a lot of people that are out there on YouTube are really the retired person who's now getting back to a flute they played in, in high school or, or just an adult that is saying, "I, I want to start playing and what, what do I need? So when you, can compare the different levels of flute or different types of flute out there, then, then they get to take their knowledge and experience and say, okay, what is it that I need? What is it that I should have for me? How much money do I need to spend?
0: Mm-hmm. And also the lower price models are machine-made, largely machine-made. And then you go up to the top end, the Boston models, the Powell, Brannan, Haynes, and then you go over to Japan. I'm, I'm sure I've missed somebody out there, but obviously the handmakers. Then you go over to Japan, then you have uh, Muramatsu, Senkyo, Miyazawa, and right. they are made largely by hand. And there right. is there is something magical when something is made by a hand rather than a machine. And that's probably right. why there is a lot of differential in handmade flutes, because one person is cutting the head joint rather than a CNC cutter, an automatic CNC cutter, which you get on the student flu. Mm-hmm. And when one person's cutting it, there, be, there is a... All I can say is that I've got an old LeFan head made by Reiner, which was oh, it's 35 years old. And when our technical director, David, at TJ, looked at it, he said, there's so many cutting imperfections in the head joint, but my, oh, wow. word, my word, it sings. It absolutely sings. Hmm. And it's handmade. So the difference between well, a handmade and factory made is huge, but you make a very fair huge. point. If you're not a very good player or not a very good player, if you're not at an advanced level. Experienced. Experienced. You won't necessarily get the, the most out of a really expensive flute. And that's what right. your videos bring over is that you have a place in your flute level and it's buying the flute that is fitting you, isn't it?
1: right. Right. You definitely need to buy the one that fits you and your budget and, and there's no right or wrong. So there's definitely some retired people that have expendable income. And you know, if you want to go all the way and get that professional model flute, even though your skills maybe don't warrant that, go right ahead. There's, there's just no wrong on that. But for those that are only, I, I tell my students, um, When they, you know, I try to get them into the step up, certainly by the time they're in high school, that they're moving into that step up. But for those that are not going to be music majors at college, I definitely say, you know, let's pick out the best one for you because this could be your forever flute. Mm. This is the one you have for the rest of your life until you're, you know, you have that expendable income and you want to move up. But let's just say you don't. Let's pick the right one for you because it can last, last forever.
0: Let's look at that Forever Flute. I mean, we're sort of, we're tarts, aren't we? Is that we'll go to a flute convention. Um, oh, that's gorgeous. Or, oh, I love that wooden flute. Or And you just go yeah. from, I mean, putting a handmade head joint on in itself is just sort of, trans, it could be transformative. Right. But we seem to fall in love a lot at conventions when there's this huge right array of instruments out there. But right. I have my Forever Flute. And it's the Rhino Le Fan head where it's white gold and a really old Matiki inline flute. Now, obviously, they don't make mm. Matiki anymore. But that is my forever, which is a bit weird because I own a flute company, which is called Drake James. <laughs> but yeah, that, that forever flute. Have you found your forever? Because you're on Haynes, aren't you? But have you found your forever?
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, definitely the grass is always greener. <laughs> Uh, You know, the grass is always greener. You go to these conventions and and you think it makes you sound completely different and gives you everything your heart has ever desired on the flute. I really found, though, that when uh, apart from a convention experience where it's just flute all the time and, you know, these phenomenal flutes are always hanging around the convention hall playing every excerpt. Imaginable from memory, and you know you're you're shrinking in size the more uh, you hear them play, and you think, wait, I don't have that memorized. Uh, I better try. You know that flute sounds phenomenal. Let me go try that one. Uh, when if you come back to your own home, in your own environment, and you have those flutes sent to you, I've really found that they don't sound as phenomenal in my own house as they do in that convention hall, in that environment. I have played a Haynes flute since early, early 20s. I've gotten a second Hanes. So I'm not playing the exact Haynes that I played at that time, but uh, I play a Haynes right now and have had it for probably since the year 2000. Mm. So it is pretty much my forever flute you know, barring some circumstances. Yep. That's, that's my forever flute. I really love it. It is a Haynes head joint. What I like is the um, riser. I have a, a gold riser and I think that just gives me that little bit of gold that I'm looking for uh, in, in the sound department. And so, yeah, that's, I think it's my forever. I wouldn't say it's my forever forever, but it's my forever right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, until Chicago this year yeah <laughs> where something else was that's, that's right yeah. yeah that's right and that's Chicago by the way everybody's <laughs> NFA and we're hoping very much that it uh, that everybody returns and it can be the NFA 50th anniversary NFA to beat all F- NFA's. so we we really do hope that the world is back to normal yep um, but what's interesting? You were talking about forever flutes. So obviously, in the UK, a lot of the many, a few years—not many years ago, but a few years ago—most pre- principal players in orchestras were playing on old French flutes, Louis Louis Lots and Bonvilles. They've most of them have sort of disappeared and moved on to other instruments. But they still keep their forever flute. Which I'm thinking about Gareth Davis, who principal of the LSO, who's a Haynes artist, but also has this most beautiful Louis Lot. And they keep, oh, that. Nice. they keep that as there forever, don't they? And it just gives you something different. So everybody, there is no, as Angela says, there is no right nor wrong. There is no best maker. Because if there was, there'd only be one. But we all have personal right. preferences, don't we? And just like we all drive different cars, and mm-hmm. we all like different kinds of artwork, and we all like different types of music. We all like different types of flute. So there is no right.
1: That's right. No no right. I just think when you're looking for a flute, the big thing is have someone else... Uh, listen to it with you Uh, because sometimes they hear something you don't hear. I had a teacher at Eastman when I was there and she said that she was picking out. Oh, I think it was a, a head joint. And it's a maker that doesn't make head joints anymore. And uh, she thought they were phenomenal. And then she had someone listen to her and they stepped way back. I'm not sure if they were enough recital hall she was trying them but she said uh, up close phenomenal when that person went to the back they couldn't hear it it sounded like a tiny tiny sound and uh, she said that was very eye-opening for her because to her ear right you know playing it, it it sounded like the best ever but then when you stepped away from that it did not have the same carry effect that it kind of, the sound kind of stopped. So she said, definitely, because I was picking out. Uh, I was thinking of picking out a head joint at that time. She said, you know, have someone listen to it away from you, because uh, that's a great experience to to know that they're not just because what you hear is not what someone else hears.
0: Do you know that's really interesting? And I'm going to go off piece tag because you've taken me off piece. Is choosing an instrument that doesn't sound good, as you say, six inches from your your mouth. And the carry is that when you hear beautiful, beautiful flute players, when you go quite close to them, you hear quite a lot of air. And yet the further back you go, you think, in my word, that sound is carrying. And if you're sounding beautiful close up, the chances are you're not going to carry to the back of the auditorium. So there there is so many different ways of sound projection so you're exactly right right with that that flute don't necessarily buy or choose one that sounds beautiful to your ears because you're not playing to your ears you're playing to the audience and as long as it's not your grandma you're fine right (laughs) and I I I say grandmas because you could play really well I did this on a previous podcast you could play really really badly but your grandma will always stand up and give you an encore
1: oh exactly exactly (laughs) yep
0: so, should we move yeah. on to another question, Angela? Sure. And I want to say I'm a lover of bringing this, this one up because there are so many different variations, but I'm going to anyway because it's been sent in. Double tonguing and the many variations right. of question mark. Unfair question, right. I know, because there's so many different types of double tonguing. But I'm just going to pass the stage or the podcast okay. over to you. And if you say it's too busy, it's too many... I don't want to put myself into a corner. That's fine. Over to you, my lady.
1: All right. Well, I definitely have my ideas about double-tonguing and I know they're not everybody's ideas. And I would say, that's absolutely fine. When I've had students come to me and say, uh, or they've studied with someone else, like some of my college students or grad students and they've studied with someone else and they come to me and I think there's an issue with their double-tonguing. And I say, I would like you to try it like this. And they say, well, I've learned it this other way. And this is with a lot of issues that you've studied with someone else and and the new teacher wants to change those things. I say, you know what, that's great. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying, try it this way because ultimately we're just learning and, and picking up different tools to put in our tool basket so that when the occasion arises for when we're playing solos we can pull the right tool to use at that time. And the tool I'm giving you might not be the right tool but the one uh, that the other teacher taught you might be at that time. So with certainly there's some things I think are, are just the wrong way to teach this, but with double tonguing, I think there is more than one way. What I learned. So I was, I remember playing Mozart concerto in high school and feeling like when I practiced the double tonguing that the roof of my mouth just got sore or just tired. I felt like I wanted a massage on the roof of my mouth and I never could figure out why and it took a long time for me to come up with I, I eventually had to have a teacher who said okay I think you have a problem with your double tonguing and she taught me how to do it differently and it was absolutely eye-opening on the different levels because it changed just how I tongued as a single tongue as well. So I know there's the ideas between the lips and the doo goo and the tu okay. I'm a tucka tucka person mm-hmm. and so I'm gonna deal with this as a tucka tuka. TK So uh, I think it where you're putting your ta and where you put the ka on the roof of your mouth is really important. I know there's names for the roof of your mouth, parts of your roof of your mouth, but I'm a very plain person. I like to say I, I don't care Like when I'm talking about vibrato, I know vocalists, they know all the parts of the voice and this, this and that, and the flap and the vocal cord. I'm like, I don't care. All I want is I want to tell you where you feel it because where you feel it is where you're going to do it. So that's the same with double tonguing. So I think because it's a, I do a tucka tucka. First thing is where you put the ta. And if you say ta or T -t 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 and you don't get a nice little sparkly sound when you say that. Your tongue is too far back and almost all the time that's the problem with double tongue ease the ta is too far back and if you think uh the, always talking the roof of your mouth i'm not an on your teeth kind of person so i'm saying as far forward as you can get so there's a little bump between your two front teeth on the roof of your mouth and that is where you hit uh, i also say you've got to visualize that your tongue is a point and not a rounded tip but it's a point and if you think of that as a point and you say ta, ta, then you get this nice little sparkly sound as you say that ta. If you move your tongue back, which is generally, it's where I was tonguing um, in between that knob and say the ridge before your roof of your mouth arches up, that's generally somewhere in there is where people ta. It has a dull sound, ta, ta is much duller. And when I hear students, I know exactly that they're tonguing in the wrong spot because it makes a thunk noise while they're double tonguing. There's this little noise, a thunking noise. I call it the thunk, and I could hear it. And it always, 100% of the time, means that tongue is too far back and it needs to move forward. And then if the tongue is forward, then where you say ca, you're just on a, I don't know, rivet, a lever. You're just going tuka tuka tuka. So the tongue doesn't have to move forward and back, forward and back, which I think it does when the ta is too far back. Then the ka has to then move a little bit forward. And so it's, it's making you do some extra movement in the roof of your mouth. So I think if we keep the ta really far forward and the ka just where it falls without moving the tongue, then it's in the right spot to start with. And that's where I advocate that the ta and the ka are and then the next most important thing is that it stays very very light so most of the time also when after we've dealt with the movement issue to keep the tongue really far forward then it's because their double tonguing is too hard they're um just too too much of a ta. and it doesn't have to be it needs to be really light. So the teacher that really taught me how to do this, Georgetta Mayola was her name. She said, you know, you just say, tuk ta do a five, make it, you know, phrased properly. And you just say, tuk a ta ta And then pick up your flute and do it on one note, tuk ta And then you say it again. And then you play, say, F up to C. And you try to do it at that speed and then back down just in fives. Just to learn that you don't have to do all these machinations to actually get your double tonguing and it's not this scary thing. Does that make sense? Oh, it
0: does. It does. Do you think we overcomplicate it by going, yeah, you've got taka taka ta, which taka taka ta, I get that, taka taka ta. But then you know they'll say, well, but then there's ticky ticky and then a like, taka taka ta, and taka taka ta, and daka daka ta and dicky dicky and there's so many different variables depending on whereabouts you go. Do you just say simplify it? Just do it. The taka taka ta, because as you say, it is very clear, very precise, and as as you just described it, you can control it.
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. I'm, I mean, if the teacher is get a certain color or sound out of, you know, I wouldn't not really dealing with this with my high school students, but sure. with my college students, yeah, we can change that and say uh, it needs to be a lighter doo goo doo goo maybe through yeah. here. But for the most part, I want my default just to be tucka a ta uh, And another really big issue that I find that makes tumble-tugging complicated is that they make it what I call a peck. <laughs> it's yes. just tuck a ta because it's like you have to stop the airflow, double-tonguing. And uh, I think it's very eye-opening for students to say, no, you push the air through, not overblow. And then all of a sudden, when they realize, oh, I've been holding all the air back, and, and it is a hen-pecking sound, when you push the air through that double-tonguing passage, all of a sudden you get toned. Yeah. Your tone is coming through. And it, it's such a beautiful thing to see students recognize that. And like all the trouble they've had with double tonguing can be solved pretty quickly once they start paying attention to that. It's Oh, it's not some kind of issue that we sometimes have where it takes months of work. You can pretty much solve the double tonguing issue. You just pay attention to these little things.
0: Wonderful. And let's not, ver- let's not go into the triple tonguing because that's not the level. No, <laughs> question three. <laughs> And the evil twig is what I call the piccolo because I struggle with this instrument. But the evil twig, piccolo playing, and how to cope with the feeling of needing to squeeze the higher up the register we go. I'm the classic case of that. I just get this urge the higher up I go that my lips get tighter and tighter and the sound squeezes.
1: Yeah. Well, I definitely had that problem too. I did go to an orchestral audition and I got the dreaded buzz. And, you know, it was all over at that point, point. Um, and that was yes, before I was really ready to take any auditions, but I, I did it because it was an experience that we all need to have, and it was a good experience because I realized, okay, here are all the things I did wrong, and this is why that buzz came when I tried to reach those high notes, and they didn't really come out. So yeah, piccolo. I think that the idea that I don't know who came up with this, it wasn't me, about practicing 30 minutes a day on piccolo, that's a great idea. If you're in college and you're really going for this professional pro flute thing, I think that 30 minutes a day is really good. But one of the key things that really helped me figure out piccolo, because for a long time I did not even have a good piccolo. And now I have a really old, I don't know when they stopped making, but I have a Brandon piccolo. So I'm not sure they s- stopped making that at some point in time. It's still a good piccolo. I think there's better ones out there, but it's good enough. And so, it, you know, I, when you're a lot of times playing the school's piccolo, they're not always in the best of shape. So I always thought, well, it's, it's the instrument. It's not me. And I didn't feel like I could really work on it. Plus the fact, I always thought I hated piccolo. And then I heard a phenomenal piccolo player playing in, oh, I think it was the St. Louis Chamber Orchestra. And all of a sudden she was playing, soloing. I don't know what it was. Seemed like it was a handle. I heard that gorgeous piccolo sound coming from, from her. And I thought, holy cow piccolo is not what I thought it was. So I realized you could actually get a nice, warm, luscious, honey sound on a piccolo. And then that made me go on a search to find a piccolo that actually could do that. The first things you need to do when you're wanting to play piccolo and to build up to those high notes is you've got to build the lip. And that just comes from a lot of medium level play. So almost all the time when kids get a piccolo, all they want to do is screech up to those high notes or they're playing in marching band and um, they're, you know, they have to play loud and high and that's really the worst thing to do. If you really want to play your high notes and to play them without that buzz and without pinching, it's building up to that. And the best way to build up to that, play a lot of medium, etudes on that intermediate level because they don't go up too high, they're not going too low, and you're just building that lip and building your skill. The second thing is to um, move it up on your lip a little bit higher than you do for your flute. So I didn't know that when I was first on my piccolo journey and I eventually learned that it made a huge difference because covering too much embouchure hole, but it felt good. It felt the right place because that's where my flute sat. And so I had the idea that it needed to be in that same exact spot. So that was eye opening because that does open up your sound a little bit. And then the other thing is support. So the... There's a book that I uh, had to read to the kids when they were all younger. And it was uh, based, it's a true story based on a man called Bowditch, who was a boy. And in the story, it's his life story in the sailing ships time. So we're talking 1700s. And he came up with the new way of navigating. So these ships wouldn't hit shoals and his like, I don't know, some of his family members had drowned and all that. He never got to college, but he was such a phenomenal mathematician that he used the stars. And the the line through the whole thing that he says all the time is it's only a matter of mathematics. So in our house, when we're working on some problem, I say, well, it's only a matter of mathematics, even though I'm, I'm terrible at math, it's not my thing. But a lot of our flu problems, only a matter of support, or it's only a matter of breathing. If you want to, I tie those two together. Our high notes on flute and on piccolo, it's all based on support. If you don't have support, you're gonna pinch till you're blue and that dreaded buzz will be there. But to get your high notes is you have to have an amazing level of support. And um, I'm a big proponent of saying, why do we use the term support if we don't know what that term means? So many people do not know what that term means. I I didn't know for a long time, I came from, I come from a whole family of brass players, three sisters all playing trumpet. Two parents were horn majors. I'm the only renegade that did not play uh, a brass instrument. And I heard the term support and could not figure out what it meant for flute. And it, you know, it was a lot of exploration before I found out support equals pressure. So well, let's use the term pressure and say you need to build up a lot of pressure on the inside so through your breathing, and then that pressure pushes up from there to hold those high notes in place, thus allowing you to open up and relax your embouchure. So we want to rely too much on our embouchure to get those high notes when we need to rely on our support to get those high notes. And then that allows for the embouchure to be able to be open enough so that you're not pinching
0: and when you see really brilliant piccolo players play they have the same embouchure as we do when we play the flute it's it looks so relaxed doesn't it
1: yes oh definitely i mean to to see a a piccolo player and watch their embouchure it's it's really nice to to watch and look at what they're doing with that and see it's not pinched it's not pinched at all i mean of course you have to you have to be a little more closed than you do for the flute and but a lot of times uh, I, I just don't say that. I just say don't pinch or don't, you know, open up that, i sure. open it up and we'll do it enough.
0: And don't be scared of it. <laughs> <laughs> right, Angela, my last number five. What, and th- oh, this is going to be a difficult one for you because you've done so many videos, but over the years, what are the five most asked questions? It doesn't have to be five, but what are the most asked questions that you have received about the flute or flute playing?
1: All right. Well, I, I would say one of the big ones is that term, that support it question. Because so many people do not know what that means. And that was me for so long, just struggling. I heard the term. I read books. I read all the magazines. I was one of the first people that got the Flute Talk magazine I, and had it through all the years and read every article in there. And not never once, never, not one single time have I ever read an article that talked about support what it means, and how to do it. And so I've done a number of videos on my channel about support and how support equals pressure. And the only way I came up with that was thinking about brass because, of course, with everybody in my family playing brass, I've played brass, I know how to play. And feeling when you are buzzing on that mouthpiece and feeling the pressure build up on the inside and having that aha moment that that is support. And we flute players do not have anything that we press against. We're just setting very lightly a mouthpiece against our lip. So we have to figure out a way to create that support. And we do it through our breathing. And tightening those muscles. I don't want to get into all of it right now, but that I've got a couple of videos on that. So if you want to get more into my ideas on what support is, you can watch those. But it equals pressure. And if you think about support being pressure, I think it makes sense to you. And then you can say, okay, I understand now why that's called support, because just like supports hold up a ceiling, your support is holding up your tone, creating this cushion of air. So that would probably be the number one question. That I get. The second one would be really need to get a professional flute, and that one, you know, we've sort of talked on that. I've had a whole lot of people when I've talked about that on online is, you know, the engineers that are watching, and they say you do not need a new flute. Keep the one, just upgrade the head joint. The head joint is all you need, and. You know, I'm not coming from an engineering standpoint. So uh, I listen to what they say and go, well, okay, yeah, I think you can. I think that is one option. Most of the time, the answer to that is no, you don't need to. Should you, maybe you should. It depends on if you're, you're really working on tone. If you're working on tone and your tone now deserves the next level, then it's time to move up. Many times, yeah, a head joint, a new head joint would be, a great economical option to move to but i think that sometimes we get too wrapped up in just tone and that you're only moving up a level because of tone whereas if you think we that play on the professional model yes tone is a large part of it but it's also the craftsmanship of the keys it's how they feel in your hands it's how they smoothly they move up the scale I think all of that, it comes into play when you're go, moving up into that professional level and it's not all 100% about tone.
0: No, do you know, I'll, I'll add a bit on that head joint thing because yes, upgrading the head joint in most cases, if you've got a good body, is potentially a good route. However, it's sometimes a handmade head joint. I think about putting a song head joint on a a silver-plated instrument. You're You're just putting a rocket launcher on on something it won't work properly that's right it, you can't yep. you can't often mix and match head joints from professional makers onto more student models because you just don't get what you would get on a professional model
1: yeah that's so true and I remember uh, I had a college student come to me with a very poor body of their flute and they they were looking for a head joint and I had to say, I don't think this is going to be what, you know, you're trying to say it gently and you in fact need to spend a whole lot more money than you are thinking um, because they're going to college and spending the money for that. And now I'm telling them their option, not going to work for them. So uh, yeah, that's, it, there's a lot more factors involved than just tone and mm-hmm. just move up to that next head joint so all those engineers that are listening we get it we understand the science behind that but there's a a few more things involved
0: there is i mean yeah we we, i think every flute player says that the flute is fundamentally an easy instrument to play but it's such a hard instrument to master because of exactly that it's the the sound the sound is what predetermines me from you from uh denis buriakov emmanuel Pahud. The sound event, let's look at the sound first. Obviously, you've got interpretation, but let's not forget the facility, which you've just pointed out, is as equal as to the sound, which is how you play the instrument. Does this flute, will it play quickly, quietly? And the higher up the instrument range you go, you are getting, it's like you're going from a bog-standard Ford car, you're going to an Aston Martin, you're going to a Ferrari, you're going to Bugatti, you're going to a Rolls-Royce, and the same thing mm-hmm. applies in flutes. You have these various different levels. And that's how you yep. can measure yourself, really. Think about it as a car.
1: Right. That's, that's exactly right. I, I one time, before the family came along and I had excess income, <laughs> uh, I was looking for a, a really good bike. You know, there was the lower-level bikes and the upper-level bikes, and the guy there knew to have me try the upper-level bike first. So that when I went down and tried the lower-level bike, not in any way feel like i could at all accept this lower level bike it had to be the upper because the gears it was smooth the shocks and all that kind of stuff and that's kind of the way it is with with the flutes too when you play those professional model flutes and then you go back down you're like well i oh, held the action the action is just so phenomenal in the professional model flutes because of that handmade business that it's hard to then move back down
0: it really is and a holy moly that. moment isn't it when you're playing a, yeah. a really expensive handmade flute i mean if even if we're just talking silver a handmade silver flute let's not go into the gold and the platinum and everything else but oh, yeah and then when you move back to a lesser price category instrument the fundamentals are well wow, the difference how it yeah. how it feels the weight and how it sounds is huge
1: That's so true. I would say the third most asked question, or I wouldn't say these are in any particular order, but is how do I get a better tone? That, of course, is all we flute players want. You know, it's all about that luscious, malicious, you know, luscious and a honey sound that comes out. And, you know, I, I think there's a couple things that you just have to do to get a better tone that a lot of people don't. I know some of the beginner books, even... Even today, I think, how, how are they still in these band books that these kids are using where they show pictures of someone pulling their corners down or pulling their corners up? The most important thing is have a natural embouchure. I, I just told someone last night, an, an adult who's um, coming back to flute and said, you look in the mirror and you, you close your mouth and you just see what do you look like when you have a natural expression and then you pick up your flute and you try to keep that as much as you can. Keep that natural expression. The second is more space between your teeth. It's amazing. You can change your tone in an instance if you just give more space between your teeth. You know, and, and when the students pull their corners back, that closes their teeth. You know, Pulling them down doesn't necessarily, but generally, the, and, and I understand that when I get a student, especially if I don't get them until they're in high school and they've just been playing at school. In order to not play loudly in the upper register, they've learned to keep a very, very tiny embouchure. You let out a tiny stream of air, you're gonna have sort of a softer sound in that upper register. And learning how now to play with uh, your teeth much farther apart, so uh, along with that, a, a bigger cavity on the inside of your mouth in the low register, I like to say ooh in the upper, but still keeping space there is is a really hard thing. And that's where it takes a while. I take away everybody's music. You don't get to play anything but these little exercises where, and you do them three or four times a day for five, 10 minutes to, because you have to change your embouchure. You have to change the way you're thinking about that. Is is just opening up the teeth and the mouth and having more space. And then the other thing about getting a better tone, it all goes back to support, is... People just use too much air in their playing and you need to learn how to hold it in, which is where the pressure, the support comes in, is hold that air in. And if you do all those three things, you'll be well on your way to getting a better tone today.
0: If you really want, and I strongly recommend though, that you nip over on the interweb and check out Angela's because there's so much. There is so many resources. I started counting the videos on YouTube and it got to the stage I was sort of flicking down. I ended up forgetting the numbers as I went along. There are loads. There are loads of teaching videos, practical videos and advice and guides that really it is a, it's, it's a font. It's the place you'd go to if you want this information. And you can find that on her website on drflute.com. And the video's at youtube.com slash drflute again. Angela, oh, you've been so kind today. Thank you.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure. Cold, cold winter. It's been a ray of sunshine.
0: Oh, that's really sweet. It's nice and sunny here, actually. And my dog, Mouse, has been quiet. She's been flat out behind us. So uh, that is a treat in itself. And um, NFA this year, if it goes ahead?
1: Yes, I' not positive I will get there. But I love going. And so I will try my hardest to be
0: there. Wonderful. And if it's there, then, you know, you can normally find me wandering around with the uh, with a couple, couple of my buddies and causing havoc, as we always do. But uh, I think the most important thing is you go there and you smile and you sit and admire flute players of all standards, and from the brilliant to those that are just starting. And every, every performance is valid. So that's why I love NFA, because it's a mishmash, a potpourri of every standard and every flute maker most flute makers are there so it is wonderful
1: it is and, and people don't necessarily know that we all don't mind getting stopped and talked to yeah that, so we, that, yeah, that is an interesting that.
0: thing isn't it yes because you're well known so if you see angela around and um you'll see her face on on um on all her videos as, as she said she's approachable and seriously she is stop it unless she's playing the contrabass because, you know, that takes a lot of air <laughs> focus <laughs> and that's, it, it curls around the body a hundred times. So um, you probably have to get her out of the flute before you can talk to her. <laughs> Angela, thank you so much for joining me today from New York State. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Looking forward to speaking to you again soon. May you have a musically fulfilling week. May your high be be especially in tune with plenty of support and your low c not as flat as mine normally is goodbye everybody information visit trevorjamesflutes.com